welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, and welcome to this month's installment of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic, and through two episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. Today's episode is the first devoted to our September 2017 issue on comparative medicine. Our issue went live last week and is available for all to read on PubMed. I am your host, Megan Kelly, a second year in the neuroscience program. And I'm your second host for today, Helen Balenson, a fourth-year student in the immunobiology program here at Yale. I served as deputy editor on this month's issue, and I'm really excited to have my co-deputy editor here today. Hi, everyone. I'm Carol Gianessi, a seventh year in neuroscience. Yeah, we're all really excited to discuss comparative medicine today and what it is and what exactly it compares. Um, so I actually pitched the idea of having an issue completely devoted to comparative medicine um, at YJB, YJBM over a year ago after reading Zubiquity by Dr. Barbara Natterson, Horowitz, and Katherine Bowers. Um, so I know, Carol, you've read this book as well, um, and it's I highly recommend it. Um, and the book basically opens with uh, Dr. Natterson Horowitz, who's the main author, um, and she's a cardiologist at UCLA. And she was called into the LA Zoo for a consultation. Um, not every day you get, as a doctor, you get to go to the zoo for a consultation. Um, and she was called in to observe, look at this emperor tamarin um, that was in heart failure. And so uh, emperor t- uh, tamarins are gray monkeys with really long white mustaches. Um, and they're actually named after the German emperor Wilhelm II after his mustache. Um, <laughs> and they live in the southwest uh, Amazon basin in East Peru, kind of all over um, South America. And she was called in just as a normal consult. And so as any doctor would, she went up to the patient and started kind of trying to calm it down by looking at the monkey's eyes. Because whenever a doctor tries to calm a patient, they look into their eyes. It causes a sense of calm in humans. However, one of the veterinarians was basically immediately said, stop making eye contact her. You're going to give her capture myopathy. Um, and Dr. Natter- Natterson Horowitz was basically like, I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> and being a doctor, she looked it up. Um, and basically what happens is that when um, animals are caught or put into cages, there's this huge surge of adrenaline in their bloodstreams, which kind of can cause uh, cardiac myopathy, so cardiac issues. And so um, what was really interesting is that as a cardio vascular professional, she recognized that the described syndromes were basically very similar to what's called takotsubu cardiomyopathy in humans. (laughs) Uh, So takotsubu are actually uh, um, octopus traps that are used in Japan. Um, And these, when you have this cardiomyopathy, basically your heart changes into the shape of one of these octopus traps. Um, And There's basically no clot, there's no blockage, there's no heart attack, but you have all these abnormal um, heart problems. Um, And this basically happens because there's a bulge in the left ventricle. Anyway, so she recognized this syndrome and these monkeys get similar syndromes. And what's really kind of sad is that um, 
This Takotsuba cardiomyopathy is also called broken heart syndrome because it's induced when people have very severe moments of emotional distress, like being left at the altar, um, which I always found very sad. But it actually, so the story led to Dr. Nadison Horowitz kind of, it served a challenge for her to kind of find, are there other situations where veterinarians and doctors are literally looking at the exact same syndromes and treating them, but have never communicated about the fact that they're the same. Um, so that's why I was really excited to kind of devote a whole issue on comparative medicine. And I know we haven't completely defined it yet, um, but yeah, so that's, I pitched it and then became deputy editor and Carol jumped on. Yeah, I joined comparative medicine as an issue editor because my research falls within the molecular psychiatry division of the School of Medicine here at Yale. And we are continuously talking about how to best model specific symptoms of psychiatric illness across species, which is one aspect of comparative medicine. So for a standard definition, comparative medicine focuses on the similarities and differences of diseases that coexist in several species of animals. And like I mentioned before, it depends on the medical subfield. So a psychiatric comparative medicine would be thinking about issues of psychiatry like depression or anxiety, whereas if you're a cardiologist practicing comparative medicine, you're going to be thinking about Takutsubo uh, cardiomyopathy. <laughs> yeah, so it is a really... Um it's a very difficult to define field. And I think the, the issue there, too, is that um, we actually had a review in our issue, which you can all check out because it's open access, um, that was written by Tomas uh, Horvath, who is the, um, the chair of our comparative medicine division here at Yale. Um, and he basically defined comparative medicine as not being a particular discipline. So for example, neuroscience is a discipline, um, but comparative medicine isn't technically a discipline. It's, quote, an investigative mindset that seeks to reveal common threads that weave different pathophysiologic processes into translatable approaches and outcomes using various models. So basically, kind of, it's a discipline where veterinarians, physicians, scientists, researchers come together to really ask fundamental biological questions using um, both human and animal models to really uncover common denominations um, for therapeutics and also for just basic biological discoveries. So one really great example of the different aspects of comparative medicine uh, is found in the history of HIV. So the human immunodeficiency virus, uh, which causes acquired immunodeficiency syndrome in humans, which is more commonly known as AIDS, uh, has been a devastating pandemic recognized by the CDC since the 1980s. Uh, the earliest cases of, of infestation, um, though earliest cases of infection may date back as far as the 1920s. HIV is a lentivirus, which means that it multiplies by incorporating its viral RNA into the DNA of a wide variety of host cells. HIV is important to comparative medicine because it is an example of a zoonosis, a disease that naturally passes from one species to another. HIV developed from simian immunodeficiency virus, a lentivirus that affects several species of primates, including chimpanzees and an adorable species called Sudi mangabeys. Look uh, up pictures. It's a really adorable monkey. <laughs> Uh, before jumping to humans, SIV was transmitted from mangabeys to chimps through the hunting practices of the latter. 
Eventually, it was transmitted to human hosts through similar means. Uh, while HIV may seem like a singular disorder, there are actually many examples of zoonoses which have had a huge impact on, uh, on populations. These include swine flu and West Nile viruses, uh, both of which you've probably heard about. Uh, these natural cross-species disease transitions suggest that there are similarities across species that allow viruses to adapt to new hosts. One such similarity was discovered by Peter Doherty and Rolf Zinkernagel in the 1970s. Uh, Doherty, who was a veter veterinary surgeon, and Zinkernagel, who was an immunologist, uh, used, mice to, used mice to explore the role that T lymphocytes play in combating viruses. Uh, lymphocytes are a type of white blood cell which identify and eliminate invading microorganisms. Doherty and Zinkernagel discovered that T cells specifically target altered cell cells, or host cells that have been hijacked by viruses. Importantly, T cells can only target cells that have the major histocompatibility complex of the host. They will not target cells from a different organ organism, even when they're infected with a virus. This finding has proven uh, to be true across many species and was integral in the development of better vaccines, including approaches to fighting uh, HIV, uh, and has also opened new realms of research into cancer development. It has been so influential that it led to a joint Nobel Prize win for the two researchers in 1996. Findings such as this one demonstrate that there are comparable aspects of physiology, biology, and chemistry across species. Um, and these similarities extend beyond the immune system. Yeah, so something that I find incredibly interesting about this whole HIV story is that, um, as Megazin was saying, like SIV jumped from primates to humans, um, and there's a lot of research done on retroviruses and let's viruses in general in mice. And the really cool aspect of this is that everyone's a mammal. So mammals have very similar immune systems from species to species. There, there are differences. I'm not saying they're identical, but <laughs> these similarities allow us to learn about a lot of these systems. Um, but in or, you don't have to be a mammal. You don't have to use a mammalian uh, model species in order to learn something about human health. So another manuscript that we had, which I very much enjoyed reading, um, was a review by U Ueda and Stern. Um, and they basically spoke about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, which is a condition where the heart muscle is basically enlarged, leading to functional impairment. And currently, we know that it's predominantly caused by DNA mutations in uh, troponin or myosin-associated proteins and is fairly prevalent, and it happens in about one, to, one in 500 people. Um, so we normally don't think that zebrafish hearts are similar to humans. But surprisingly, we are closely related enough where we can actually learn a lot about human heart health, specifically with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in zebrafish. So for example, um, it, it was found that if you put similar mutations as cause human disease into zebrafish, they have very similar heart problems. So you can actually study the underlying genetic mechanisms um, that lead to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy using zebrafish. Um, and not, not only that, um, but uh, you can also use a lot of other models to study this. And the ability to use multiple models to study one quote-unquote disease is really important. So, for example, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it is a very heterogeneous disease. And what do I mean by that? That basically means that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is just the muscles enlarged. 
lots of things can lead to this. This can lead to a lot of different problems. And in the human population, because it's so different, it's very difficult to really narrow in what's causing what. And in animal models, um, the heterogeneity of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is diminished. So we can actually isolate uh, particular genes that cause particular aspects of this disease. Um, and so I, I talked about zebrafish, um, but you can also use uh, mice to study this. So you can use transgenic mice, um, which allows for a really deep analysis of the molecular interactions within the cardiac tissues themselves to really kind of dissect what's happening biophysically. Um, and then this is, uh, there is also the issue that this is, um, although we can learn a lot, there are limitations to this research. Um, and Carol will be speaking about this in a little bit, but all of these models are what's called induced models. So we kind of, researchers uh, cause mutations, induce mutations or induce these sorts of heart problems, whereas in humans, these issues are not induced. They happen spontaneously. Um, and with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we have really great spontaneous models in cats and non-human primates. So they are very similar to human disease, and they are as spontaneous as in humans. So we can really understand more kind of how this disease actually starts, whereas we learn the biochemical and biophysical mechanisms in the zebrafish and the mice, and we get a very different look at it in uh, cats and monkeys. So I think that just emphasizes this, um, the need to look at a multiple models to really get a broad scope of what's happening in the disease. And of course, any new treatment that is developed for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can then be implemented in veterinary settings for your house cat that gets this disease. Yeah, I think it's something that I really thought was interesting was just how many authors um, through our manuscripts discussed the benefits to veterinary science as well. Um, it's not it's not all about us. <laughs> it's, <laughs> the animals are always important as well. So yeah, mo most of the papers uh, that we're discussing today are primate papers, and I just wanted to make some distinctions between uh, observational models, spontaneous disease models, and induced disease models. So the observational models, like the ones in the Bales manuscript, which observed TD monkeys. Wild which are also really, really cute. Yeah, also very cute, wild TD monkeys. And so to determine which monkey has what biological sex in the wild, sex hormones can be measured from a fecal sample. From this and other behavioral observations, we can better understand the relationships and social hierarchies within wild TD monkey populations. Now, veterinary medical models can observe spontaneous disease in primates, like the uh, cardiomyopathy that Helen was des describing, or atherosclerosis, otherwise known as forms of heart disease and hypertension. And there's also induced models. So the Kaplan manuscript in our issue describes both the spontaneous disease models in primates as well as an induced model. So they were particularly looking at estrogen levels as they fluctuate normally in primates, uh, similar to humans. And although monkeys do undergo menopause, um, they do so at a very 
late age. And so uh, they surgically removed the ovaries to model menopause in these monkeys because the natural menopause in monkeys occurs towards the end of life rather than in midlife, like in humans. So the surgical approach provides the opportunity to study midlife ovaryectomized monkeys as a model for midlife menopausal women. And what I found fascinating about the Kaplan paper was that they could show that uh, fluctuations in the estrogen that normally occurs during throughout women's lives uh, can really impact their heart disease risk. And since heart disease is such an important uh, killer, a big killer of uh, men and women around the world, understanding ways of preventing any kind of artery hardening that's occurring right now in all of us um, would be a boon to everyone. And um, what I really liked about the Kaplan paper is that they, they put complementary approaches together to, sh- to form this really uh, good picture of how estrogen contributes to protecting um, female arteries and how you can get a decrease in estrogen from something as simple as being bullied. So uh, there's rigid social hierarchies in monkeys. And so they looked at subordinate monkeys versus dominant monkeys and found that the dominant female had greater protection from estrogen and the subordinate females had uh, worse outcomes in terms of their cardiovascular system. And it turns out that being the subordinate monkey, you suddenly become, uh, have a more varied menstrual cycle and you have less estrogen released. And that's completely analogous to humans. Uh, There's a lot of social Uh, stress that occurs in women, and particularly if you have comorbid eating disorder, you can become amenorrheic, which is another way of saying you stop having your period. And it turns out that that can contribute to um, artery hardening. And the, the glimmer of hope that was offered by Kaplan's research is that if you just give oral contraceptives or uh, synthetic estrogen hormones, you can reduce the atherosclerosis risk. Although, of course, you should do that with a doctor. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that really kind of breaks down the importance of both spontaneous and induced models. So with spontaneous models, you can really observe a natural, a disease in its natural state and kind of you can study it from the beginning um, and see really what happens. But with induced, you can really break that down and understand it more molecularly. Um, And if you remember our interview um, a few months back with Dr. Catherine Politi on our drug development podcast number two, um, she was discussing the importance of this spontaneous versus um, induced Uh, models in cancer. So for example, she was studying um, transgenic mouse models where she added in a a mutant form of a protein that's commonly found mutated in in lung cancers to understand particularly how that mutated protein interacts with the environment. Um, So breaking everything down from, oh, this is a cancer with 
tens of hundreds of mutations, but how does this one particular aspect influence disease? Um, so, yeah, just the, you learn lots of things from different things, and it's kind of trying to put the puzzle pieces together. Um, well, trying to find the puzzle pieces, trying to figure out if they're in the <laughs> same puzzle, then trying to put the puzzle together. So. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and it turns out that many models of disease are induced in inbred mice. And uh, these mice are studied because they are so inbred that they're all genetically identical to one another. And then you can go in and, and knock out or change a single gene and observe what that gene does in isolation. So this is an example of the principle of reductionism. So you're controlling for all the other variables by keeping them the same in all subjects. So all of the mice are housed the same way. You control their environment. You control what they're eating and all things like that. And the only thing that differs between your control group and your experimental group is the one variable that you're manipulating. So uh, why are we using mice? It turns out for historical reasons with the earliest technologies of gene editing, they were most successful in mice compared to other small mammals. And so now they've just become the backbone species for much of biological, uh, biomedical research. And um, we can never have a full picture of biology with just one model species, particularly with these inbred mouse strains, because they are so inbred. And so the downside to inbreeding is that you don't have such a strong immune system function, and it becomes a less accurate model for humans who are very outbred and have great genetic diversity. And so uh, this is why another reason why complementary models, such as including spontaneous disease models, are necessary to have a more complete picture um, because uh, the limitations of the inbred mouse models are the strengths of the spontaneous model and vice versa. So you can really put these findings together into a bigger picture. Yeah, I think that's like the biggest thing that I've learned about comparative medicine kind of working on this issue is I went into it just thinking it's veterinarians and humans comparing diseases in both of them. <laughs> and so I was just excited to learn about kind of what is similar and what is different. Um, but it really it really does encompass this aspect of research where we're trying to understand how to prevent and cure diseases and trying to understand the biological bases of them. And it's it's hard to get that picture. It re really is difficult. And understanding how to develop models, how to use models to learn about this is also a very big aspect of comparative medicine. So it's not, so you're comparing, going back to the main question, what are we supposed to be comparing? Um, is At least for me, the way I understand it is you compare either naturally occurring diseases in humans and in animals, or you're comparing lab, like laboratory models to the human disease and kind of trying to fit them in together to really understand, um, as we've mentioned before, not just human disease, but all disease. Ultimately, you have to remember that uh, diseases are incredibly complex, uh, are incredibly complex things. And so in order to tackle any single element of it, we really have to approach it from all different directions and uh, get a really good look at all the different factors that play a role. Uh, and using different models allows us to do that. 
And there are also a lot of really cool non-traditional animal models, which um, I was never expecting to find um, in the process of kind of studying for this podcast as well as reading the issue. Um, as Carol mentioned, the TT monkeys uh, were use, are used as a model for pair bonding, so understanding adult relationships. Um, and I never – and monkeys have very different relationships, and I did not think that this cute little monkey would have very similar actions as humans. Um, and I guess I was naive on my part for not – for being so anthropocentric. Um, but that was a really cool – discovery for me a really amazing article so there are other i'm happy to talk about other cool animal models um so another one is uh songbirds songbirds are used very frequently to understand uh vocal developmental disorders so um birds are very vocal creatures um especially well i guess now the fall fall's setting in so it's less exciting but in the spring it's very clear um and studying songbirds allows us to not just learn kind of motor output, so kind of how sounds are created, kind of evolution of vocal cords, but also for sensory input. How do we hear things? Like, how do we interpret noise? Um, and that has, studying songbirds has really opened up the door um, to understand these vocal disorders, uh, which has been really amazing. Well, and also they, they show you how you learn because in a lot of the songbird species, if you remove them from their social context, they'll never learn the species-specific song. Um, they need a teacher. I don't think I'd ever be able to learn a song that long. <laughs> <laughs> They're so specific. Um, yeah, there's also uh, one of my favorite models um, is the naked mole rat. Um, so for me, the naked mole rat was always just Kim Possible uh, impossible <laughs> flashbacks. Um, but naked mole rats are actually the longest living rodent, um, which typically long life is associated with a lot of diseases, uh, cancer being one of the main age-associated diseases that most people think of. But what's really interesting is that naked mole rats don't get cancer. They're also very resistant to induced tumorigenesis, so they can't get cancer. Um, so this, the naked mole rat um, has been a really great model for people in the uh, aging research community to understand how this happens mm. and also in the cancer research community to figure out why these animals aren't getting cancer, even though everything we seem to know about aging leads to the idea that you sh they should get cancer. Um, and it's something that I never would have expected out of the naked mole rat. <laughs> uh, you also see a lot of uh, human techniques being applied to uh, animal models in order to better their lives. Uh, so one really great example of where this is found uh, is with uh, enabling uh, reproduction of endangered species. Uh, so things like reversible vasectomy techniques have been applied to gorillas and chimpanzees in order to study female ovulation cycles and reproductive physiology. Uh, that enables researchers to better understand what methods can be used to increase their birth rates. Uh, you also see uh, egg banking and sperm banking being used uh, on species like amphibians and Mexican wolves that are uh, harder to study in that capacity. Um, and then lastly, in vitro fertilization has been used uh, successfully with orangutan, uh, orangutan species. Uh, orangutan species, uh, the pure 
species who don't show the crossbreeding uh, often struggle. Gosh, I don't know how to phrase this. Um, struggle to procreate. Well, they have like they miss the behavioral stuff. We edit this, right? I hope yeah. so. Okay, good. Uh, so they, they like the behave. They don't have the right behavioral action, so they can't actually. Reproduce. So they haven't learned. They don't know how to yeah, have they sex. Don't, they don't have. They don't have how to have sex. Should I say that? <laughs> um, Intercourse. So, <laughs> in vitro fertilization techniques have been used on orangutan species. Uh, so, with orangutan species, you find that uh, a lot of the pure uh, subspecies uh, that have been raised in captivity. Uh, don't possess the behavioral knowledge, uh, don't, don't possess the behavioral aspects, behavioral actions required to attract a mate. Uh, so there is a lot of, a lot of issues uh, raising, no. God, this is like proving a lot more difficult than I expected it to be, trying to like come up with something on the fly uh, and not script it. Um, okay, let me try again. In vitro fertilization techniques have been used with orangutan species. Uh, with orangutans raised in captivity, we find that a lot of them uh, do not develop the proper behavioral techniques to attract a mate. Uh, so with orangutans raised in captivity, uh, uh, the zookeepers struggle to uh, enable them to reproduce. And so what they found is that if they can take uh, orangutans from the wild who may not be pure species, they can use in vitro fertilization to take eggs or sperm from the uh, pure orangutan species and preserve their genetic matter. Yeah, it's a really, there's so <laughs> many techniques that have been applied to animals too. And another big one is um, sleep, sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is sleep, dis, uh, sleep associated disordered breathing. Um, and basically when you're asleep, your breathing is interrupted. Um, and this is not great um, considering we all need to breathe. Um, and there's not that many great animal models that are induced. However, there are great natural models. So in uh, dog breeding, there are species that have been bred where they have abnormal upper airway anatomy. Um, so these are the bulldogs. So French bulldogs have the classically kind of scrunched faces. So, um, and they were bred to look like this. Um, again, we will not delve into dog breeding. Um, but they have enlarged soft palates. They have narrowing of the oropharynx. Um, and so this leads to a lot of sleep apnea. Um, and a really big issue with sleep apnea is that your oxygen saturation of your red blood cells plummets. Um, and we see this in these bulldogs where their saturation goes down lower than 90% um, during, particularly during rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. Um, and studying sleep apnea in humans and in bulldogs has led to a lot of therapies that are, can be used in humans and bulldogs. Um, so unfortunately, these dogs are prone to sleep apnea, but we have been able to study them in humans and really help both so yeah it's very looking at dog species is very interesting because a lot of these inbred lines or kind of purebred lines have a lot of these same issues um especially when a when a disease is caused by a particular mutation and that mutation stays in the line um that always is a problem but happily bulldogs now have treatments 
And the comparative medicine has come full circle yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, thank you guys for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal Biology and Medicine podcast. Uh, we will be back next month with um, an interview with Dr. Zeiss, a veterinarian here at Yale, to further discuss veter- uh, comparative medicine, veterinary sciences, and human um sciences. And uh, we want to thank the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for helping with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Um, Thank you to my co-editor-in-chief, Yasmin Zakinyaz, and the rest of the YJBM board. Um, Our podcast crew, or our pod squad, as I affectionately call ourselves, is uh, made up of me, Megan Kelly, Erica Gorenberg, Neil Ravindra, and John Ventura. Um, For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Um, You can find our whole podcast archive there. We've reached one year. Yay! Um, Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal Biology and Medicine at PubMed.com. And if you would like to contact us, please email us at yjbm at yale.edu.